Hey, welcome to the Sanctuary Church podcast. Sanctuary Church is a family following the path of Jesus together in Providence, Rhode Island. If you'd like to learn more about our community, you can visit our website at sanctuaryri.org or check us out on social media. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope you are encouraged by today's teaching. Dallas Willard asked this question. Every church ought to ask two questions. What is our plan for making disciples, and is that plan working? What is our plan for making disciples, and is that plan working? What is our plan for making apprentices, and is that plan working? Our what, what are we here to do as a church? Our mission is to see people become passionately engaged followers of Jesus. I pray that is the mission no matter the language of every church ever. It is what we are here to do. And we've gotten into a bit of trouble. For those of you, especially maybe who've been around church a while, you'll recognize this in the Western church because we've become fixated. It's easy sometimes to become fixated on the wrong sort of growth. There's been specific moves that we have done under the surface over the last year or two that have made it so our church, it's not our hope, but we know that because of some of these moves, our church will not grow numerically at the rate that it probably could. By design. Hour and 45 minute service where sometimes people get up and like share a word that they're hearing from God right away, non-starter for half the folks coming through the door. How we think about growth and what is growth and the right kind of growth is critical. Just to give you a little flyover, and those of you who are like brand new to church and really green, apologies, you won't have necessarily a deep reference point for this, but I want to share this. First, the idea that Sunday is king, Sunday is everything. And to make Sunday work, you need a ton of volunteers. Ironically, just showed a volunteer video. Then you need all these resources to fund it. I think a lot of people think that as long as you've got really good Sundays and you've got a ton of people and you've got all the right resources going to the right stuff and design, you'll have all the money to fix your problems and we'll have volunteers to make the stuff work and we'll have something on Sundays that people will want to come to. But I'm not sure that served us well. I'm not sure that served us super well. In our tradition, one million people will leave the church this year. 67% of kids will lose their faith their freshman year of college. 80% of people who attend churches like ours do not have a biblical worldview. It's not even like a super robust biblical worldview. That's like toddler level biblical worldview. So let me ask this question. What is our plan for making apprentices? And is that plan working? And how do we measure it? Our plan is to create a family is following the path of Jesus together. So you, many of you know our why, our vision. We want to see the fame and deeds of God renewed in our time. It's why we're here. What are we doing? We want to see people become passionately engaged followers of Jesus. How do we do that? By becoming a family that follows the path of Jesus in this region. So let's unpack this. I want to start with like a little phrase here. And this idea is seeing people become passionately engaged followers of Jesus passionately engaged. Another way to put that would maybe be compelling. Like people who are in, and I've gotten kickback from like colleagues about this. Like just tell people they need to be followers of Jesus. How can you be a non-passionately engaged followers of Jesus? How can you do that? Right? How can you actually be a non, like can you not be passionate? And I will say like, I agree with that basic sentiment. Like, yeah, I don't know how you follow Jesus in like a tepid way. But people Figure out, figure out a way to think that they're doing that. Do you know what I mean? Well, no, I'm a follower of Jesus, but like never given a dollar to like the church. I don't really serve anybody. I've never really tried to reach anyone for Jesus. I have deep, 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 deep levels of, I'm not talking about chronic anxiety, but just like live with a sense of worry all the time. My entire goal is to like make sure I get as much money as possible so I can retire at an early age. And like, that's like, that's the end game. Like I, I, I find all my fulfillment in all these things, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Like, I don't know how you sit back when we're worshiping the God of the universe. I'm not talking about worship preferences. I'm talking about like, <clears throat> I don't know how we do that and we don't lean in in our life. 
This is not some weird works righteousness, like you got to do a bunch of stuff to get God to love you. But even the fact that I have to give that preface shows the problem, right? How many of you kind of know somebody, you kind of feel in your heart and own like, yeah, I'm a follower of Jesus, but passionately engaged seems a bit much. Right? We talked last, yesterday at our team conference, we gathered our team and leaders together and we talked about how we need to fend off lukewarmness. Fend off like the blase of the world. Fend off. I was gonna say the neutral colors, but I really like neutral colors. So let's unpack this. I think that Jesus was passionately engaged. <laughs> Most compelling person who's ever lived. And I read the gospels and I, I, I struggle with weeping. My friend Laura sent a text to this prayer thread recently. And she was like, guys, it was like so random. It was like literally the most random time. Nothing about the prayer thread we were talking about. And she's just like, I'm reading this passage in James and I am just like caught up in the seventh heaven. She didn't say it like that. But like basically, she's like, I'm just like in tears right now. I'm like, I get that. Now we, we're not always at that like degree all the time. We know that life is hard. You don't live at that peak at that level. In fact, you begin to live this sweet, non-anxious, deepening, rich presence with the Lord but just being swept up in those moments of tears, this has been the season for me. It's like, who is this man that got everything right? I think about Jesus and the level of differentiation to love and yet let people walk away. His ability to get angry and throw over tables at injustice, and yet when his friend dies, he weeps. To love the outcasts and still eat with the religious and political elite. It's like hanging with, you know, the outcasts hanging with like undocumented immigrants one day and then finding himself like in the center of DC and the next. To die for the sins of the world while he's dying for this, like, and while he's doing that, forgiving the very people who crucify him. There's nobody like him. There's nobody like him. Jesus is so passionately engaged in the work of the kingdom, in life with his father. How can we take How can anybody take the most compelling person who's ever lived and make him boring and apathetic? What a sin. What a sin. And so we know a sanctuary. Like we are interested in being a church that is forming and shaping people who are passionately engaged. Alan Mann says this, the vision of the modern life is summed up in the phrase project self which means society exists as a blank canvas for personal self-expression. I don't want to be around people who, <laughs> who like live for that. I want to be around people who like reject Project Self, people who are faithful to Jesus's invitation to seek first the kingdom of God. I'm wanting people who are committed to God's mission in the world. And I want people who are actually interested in apprenticing with Jesus. People who are willing to live like him and do what he did. Walk these four directions that we have. Learning to be with him upwards. Allowing him to make us whole. Moving outward in mission and love. And doing that as family pushing back against the radical individualism of our age. So there's three things that we talk about. And for those of you who've been around for a while, this is all like, yeah, I've been this. If you were leaders that are leader gathering uh, a few months back, I shared this with you. But returning to these three things that are so important. How does a person change? How does a person grow? Our little theme for this year is that there's more. Just so basic. There's more. There's more. There's more to this journey because I think our church is having a renewal moment right now. There are, I shared this yesterday, there are just pockets of joy like I've never seen it. Pockets of healing like I've never seen it. People who are literally taking out big old machetes and putting to death their cynicism day after day. Sorry, that's so violent hacking them off and they put the cynicism, just kidding. 
It's so encouraging. And so I think in a moment like this, I sense the Lord being like, just remind them that there's more. Not like getting on some spiritual conveyor belt and trying to do more. No, 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 like there's a richness. You're getting a first taste. We're returning to our first love. And it's like going to the, like you're at the pool and you got your bathing suit on. Maybe you've even taken a first step into the water and God's like, next step. Next step, sis. Next step, bro. Some of you just like straight up cannonball off. Just go for it. Water's fine. Like get in. There's more. This is the invitation again and again from the scriptures. I forgot to read the, the verse for today that I want to like bounce all this back, come back to. But if you draw near to me, I will draw near to you is a promise. A promise. And it's a promise, sort of like the height and depth and width of God's love that we just reflected on in scriptures. We can go, there's more. We can go higher and wider and longer. The invitation to draw near is not a one-time thing and not a box checking and now I'm here. Friends, there are folks in this congregation that have been walking with Jesus longer than I have, who have a spiritual maturity and depth and authority deeper than I have. But I will say still as somebody who's been walking with the Lord for a long time, and for some of you who look to me for that authority, I feel like I'm ready to go like to an, like another place and another level. I hope that encourages you. Because some of you will probably have some vision of pastoring like they should already be at the bottom of the pool, the pastor. Gosh, no. I feel like I'm relearning all over again what it is to trust this beautiful and compelling man. And so the way that we do this and the way that we think about this at our church is these three words, encounter, formation, and belief. And to bring all of our different pictures together as we walk upwards learning to be with Jesus, we do this through belief, encounter, formation. I'll talk about this in a minute. As we Journey inward, asking God, will you make us whole? On that path, on that direction, we pay attention to belief, encounter, and formation. Encounter, what I mean by that, is a way of saying that we have to be marked by the presence of God. Marked by the presence of God. God's still alive and active and speaking. We've got to be formed into the image of Jesus through shared practices. And then lastly, we have to have right thinking, belief about who God is. The most important, one of the most important things about us, about our thought life is what we think about God. Most people don't get all three. A lot of us are all about presence. All about presence. All about like, I need an encounter and then another encounter and a bigger counter and a fresher counter. It's like floating, levitating. Anyone grow up in the Assemblies of God in our charismatic church? Anybody? No, okay, I won't even talk about this one. Great. It's like glory, fire, presence. It's like, it's beautiful. But if that's all you have, you have a sort of hyper-spirituality. It's just insufficient. And, and then you get people um, who are all about formation, like spiritual practices. I need the Sabbath, silence and solitude. And what can happen there if that's all you have is a sort of spiritual narcissism. Everything can go inward so quick and just become a sort of secular self-care like thing with like a little bit of religious language over top. It became, became rote religion really, really quick actually. Because it's like, I'm oh, just doing these things and these practices and they help me become a more grounded, mindful person. And we just put some Jesus language on it and it's just practice. And then you get people who are all, like all about belief. All about belief. And it just becomes almost like a, a spiritual bulimia. We just take in and take in and take in and we take in and then we sort of throw it up on Monday. We just, it's more information. If I'm really going to change, I need to do more and learn more. And if I learn more and I learn more and I learn more. And if anything that we know, one of the great like kind of failures in this moment of the church is that we have, we know a lot of things and we haven't put them into practice. Most people get two out of the three right. If you get the presence of God, there should be a little triangle up here. Get that little graph up there? No? There she is. 
If you get um, presence, the presence of God and you get formation, what you'll end up with is a sort of spiritual selfishness. My encounter with God, my transformation. And if it goes off track, it's heterodoxy. It gets sort of enmeshed so fast in all the cultural forces of our day. Without a knowledge of God, you long, like, <laughs> without a knowledge of God, it will kind of tilt you away. This is sort of the uh, example of the prosperity gospel on the one side or the progressive gospel on the other. If you get formation and belief, but you don't have presence, you're going to get powerless, powerlessness. People who have little nuggets of wisdom and they have a framework for life change without intimacy. It's like, I mean, I don't know. It's like a pulled together marriage without sex or affection or romance. And if you get the presence of God and you get belief, but you're not deeply changing to the image of Jesus through practicing the way of Jesus, you get spiritual teenagers. No shot at teenagers. People who have the air of spiritual maturity but actually lack emotional depth. Children. They can maybe even preach a sermon, but their way of life doesn't actually square with the way of Jesus. Now, if you get presence and formation and belief together in one person, word, deed, and power together, you get yourself a sweet little passionately engaged follower of Jesus. Sweet little one. <laughs> like, you know, you, you, you know um, that person who has practices and rhythms in their life that are helping them be transformed, who are passionate about the word and who are marked by an encounter with God. So I want to unpack these really quickly. Belief, right thinking about God, right thinking about ourselves and the world. George Muller says this, the vigor of our spiritual life will be in exact proportion to the place held by the Bible in our life and thoughts. I solemnly state this from the experience of 54 years. The first three years after conversion, I neglected the word of God. He's just saying, I, like for so long, I neglected reading the Bible. Since I began to search it diligently, the blessing has been wonderful. Great has been the blessing of consecutive, diligent, daily study. I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the word of God. There's a cynicism around the Bible. There's this idea that we can have spiritual maturity without the scriptures because we place ourselves above them. And I will grant the scriptures meaning. I've said this a number of times, but you'll never hear the voice of God if you determine which parts of the Bible you're going to let work for you. You're just going to hear your own voice. You're going to create an echo chamber. You've got to sit and let the word work on you. Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect. Like the scriptures are perfect. They refresh the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy. They make wise the simple. Any of y'all feel simple? <laughs> Come on. Like they make you wise. There's a wisdom there. They give joy to the heart, light to the eyes. They're pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm. In a world where there's so little that's firm and everything feels gray, there's a firmness to them. It's good and comforting and beautiful. They're more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. By them, your servant is warned. Warning in the scriptures is all about love, right? You warn those that you love. You warn those that you care so deeply about. Don't do it. Don't, 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 don't. In keeping those warnings, there is reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. The scriptures have a way of reading you. We talk about reading the Bible and studying the Bible, but letting it read you. It's amazing. People can go to a Bible study and leave like with the same exact like brokenness and ache in their in their communication, in their conversation, in their heart. If we don't let the Bible actually read us, we're just taking in more. Forgive my hidden thoughts, right? What's the thing about blind spots is you don't know you have them. And the Bible is something that reveals them. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I'll be blameless, innocent of transgression. May these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing to you. You gotta see the value of the word of God for your own life and formation joy-infused, valuable, priceless, radiant, integrated. The psalmist is like, I can't get 
Anyone feel that way about the Bible? It's like, I can't get enough. And by the way, when you bump up against things, we live in a beautiful moment. When you bump up against things, you're like, what on earth? Why is the book of, the, the pastor told me to read the book of John and it begins with a long list of names. Just, just, text, just te text me, e email us, or just go to thebibleproject.com and just go there. <laughs> like, look, let the questions you have and the confusion that you have, guys, the Bible is all over the place. It's not written like a handbook. It's stories and laments. It's like firsthand accounts and poetry. Right? You, we read the Bible literarily. And so we have to let it come alive. Many of you commented on the sermon that I gave a few weeks back about Revelation and Domitian, and they did an overview of the whole book of Revelation in a sermon. I loved the people who sent so many emails. Where'd you get all that from? Ha ha ha. Books, but like, it's like my favorite email in the world. Like, here, here's a book, here's a book, here's a book. It's actually not always very helpful. No one's going to read all that. But it's like there's, there, there, there's so much to explore. And then there is just the beauty of reading the Psalms. Jesus' prayer book was the Psalms. Every, it feels like every human emotion sits in there. Half the Psalms are gospel songs, right? Like Jocelyn, all the way turned up during worship, half of them, right? And the other half are that person who's sitting here today who are watching like us, like in ecstatic worship. And you're like, do you know how bad my life is right now? I can't, I just, I can't. I want that joy, I don't have it right now. The Psalms will meet you in both places. Psalms will meet you right there in that despair and that grief and that anxiety and that uncertainty. All right, the two, belief. If we're going to be passionately engaged followers of Jesus as we journey upward, inward, outward, withward, one, two, upward, inward, outward, as we journey down these four directions, you're like, what is this guy on? Um, if we journey in these four directions, these three things we have to have in mind. We have to be thinking the right things about Jesus. If I'm gonna journey upward to be with him, I, I have to have the right understanding of what it is to be with him. As a journey inward being made whole, what does wholeness look like? And how do I have a revelation of my sin? I need the scriptures. I need to, 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 to actually have proper belief. As a journey outward, what does mission look like? A lot of people are talking a lot about justice. What does biblical justice look like? I want that to be my frame. Withward, how does the Bible talk about community and family? It's impossible to be in a home church and thrive and impossible to be in our church. It really is just impossible to do Christian community without actually following the way of Jesus. If you try to do it like the world, you'll have the same gossipy, backstabbing, non-ability to confront with love community that you have anywhere else. Now, we're not gonna be perfect. We're the most jacked up of anybody, but we are seeking to understand our proper belief of what community actually looks like. Two, belief, one, two, encounter. A.W. Tozer says, I want the presence of God himself or I don't want anything at all to do with religion. I want all that God has or I don't want any of it. I quote people like that, man, because that's just my personality, right? Give me it all. It's almost angry. We are told by Jesus, hear this, that our, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, your divine birthright as a Christian is that my sheep will hear my voice and follow me. That is not code for my sheep will read the Bible and follow general principles. We can walk in deeper intimacy and deeper connection and we are promised by God that his presence will be with us. In Exodus 33, there's this classic verse where Moses says, if your presence doesn't go with us, how will anybody know we're your people? That's how they'll know. Our love will look different. They will know we are Christians by our love. That love will look divine because it's marked by God. You ever been with somebody and you're like, that person has been in the presence of God. There's something about the way they are encouraging, reading my mail, calibrating like invitation and challenge perfectly. There's something about the way that they forgive and they ask for forgiveness when they failed or when they've hurt me. There's something about the way they're wrestling with their fear and anxiety that is just so godly. Like they're marked by this. And Moses says, if your presence won't go with, you, with us, guys, for Vision Sunday, this is like the verse I could return to every year. As we go into a new ministry year, I don't want to go if God is not leading us. This was how... People were marked out as followers of Jesus. And what's funny about this, for those of you who know your Bible, 
You know, there was actually a lot of ways that you could distinguish the, the Hebrew people. Circumcision being one was a distinctive in the ancient Near East. Their dietary laws were distinctive. Their worship rhythms and their traditions, their festivals were distinctive, but they weren't enough. These old traditions have all these physical and sociological markers, but it was only the presence of God that really lets people know, really lets people know that, that who God is and that we're walking with him. Matthew 28, this is a beautiful passage and we often forget the last part. Jesus says, I will be with you always. Always, he's with me. You're not here, guys, grinding it out. This is not part of the sermon. You are not, it's so hot. You are not here grinding it out. You're not alone. I don't need to have a prophetic word to know that somebody in this room right now like just needs that. Like you're, just, you're not alone. You're not just grinding it out. You can actually have communion with the God of the universe. Something our friend John Tyson framework that he gave us that I found so helpful was that we as a church want to have kind of sitting at the center of our prayer life, this, pray, this prayer, God, we want you here. God, you're wanted here. Because God comes where he is wanted. Jesus scans for hunger. Jesus scans for those that are open. A broken and contrite heart's all I want, like, Drew Hewn at our team conference yesterday mentioned like it's just, God's just looking for need, need, need. Lord, I need you, I want you, I can, I, I wanna trust that I can hear your voice. And it takes a little time sometimes to hear the signal through the noise, just like it takes a bit of time to really get to know a friend, just like it takes time to really get to know a spouse. But God comes where he's wanted. I read a lot about the revival that happened in 1820. I still can't put it down. I keep finding new random letters on Google Books of what God did. Books of sermons at Brown Library. I'm like, I'm like obsessed just like reading about what God did in this area. Man, there are churches that God seems to skip over in that revival churches that didn't want anything to do with what God was doing. Like they write about it. There's this religious fervor and people are getting a little too riled up and they don't grow and some of them actually die. Some churches literally aren't here in the city and you can trace it back to those moments. It's our job to cult be people who cultivate this cry in our hearts. We want your presence here, Lord. We want your presence. And so this framework, actually it's from Duncan Campbell. I heard it from, from John Tyson. He talks about these four altars. These four places that we want to ask, Lord, would you come? And the first one is saying um, that, God, uh, we, we want you in our hearts first and foremost. God will bypass a thousand lukewarm people to fill the one hungry person. God wants our hearts. Second, God wants us in our homes. I've devoted so much time um, with Sarah over the years. Um, trying to figure out, Sarah's uh, somebody who's helped shape how we think about kids and family formation. She's somebody who's done so much deep thinking on this and as part of it came out of being so disillusioned. Why in spite of all of the best efforts of the church and all of these fancy programs that came out over the last couple decades, the staggering amount of curriculum and advanced programs that we have ended up with the most secular generation in American history. How did that happen? What went wrong? I don't say that to disparage anybody who came before us. But you're probably one of those people or sitting next to somebody who that formation that happened, what your parents passed down to you was insufficient for this moment. And what I realized is that a lot of people didn't disciple their kids. I, do you know how many people come to me and go, I was never discipled, never discipled. There was no altar in my home. There was no place where we would worship and seek the Lord together. Kids weren't taught the word of God. They got like Bible light. <laughs> One of the things that's so extraordinary about um, some of the like renewal movements and revivals that I read about is these kids 
kids who had non-believing parents, who had things imparted into them, and God used the little bit that was put into their heart to actually like shape and shift what happened in their region. Number three, the third place that we want to pray for an encounter with God is then in our church family, hungering from the presence of God. Most of the people show up on Sunday, and you know what the last person they expect to see is? I know the last person they expect to meet when they show up here at Sunday? God. <laughs> I expect good coffee. A little oat milk would be nice. Let's keep, this, keep the trains running on time. Right? Some solid kids programming. That's pretty okay. These are not bad things. I like a little oat milk. Not my coffee, though, let's be honest. Coffee is meant to be drank black. Amen, right? Yep. Yep. How many Dunkin' Donuts people we got in here? Raise your hand high. It's okay. It's New England. Yeah. yeah there's a lot of prayers for you. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But we expect, like, it's kind of wild. We want to be a church that's hungry for the presence of God, and you actually expect to meet God here. If you get enough hungry people building enough hungry homes <laughs> and enough churches that value the presence of God and enough people in a region and other churches doing this, then, man, you will see something happen in a region like I've read about where it's something like 12, 13% within four months of people within the city of Providence began to come to church. We finish with this around the encounter. Secularism, in essence, is doing a reverse exorcism through our culture. It finds trace of any faith, and then it kicks it out. And that's why when Christians, like, say this prayer, God, we want you here. We want you in our life. I want you in my home. I want you in my church. I want you in my city. It's the most potent thing you can pray. We want people hungry and marked like marked by the presence of God. It is saying, no, 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 God, you are actually welcome here. So the last thing is formation. En encounter. We have to be people who are open to encounter belief, believing the right things as we journey in these four directions, and then formation. The church exists, C.S. Lewis says, to form people into the image of Christ. And if it's not good at that, it's not good the church exists for one overarching theme is to help people become like Jesus. So we have to help people think and love and act like Jesus. We have to be people who acknowledge that we are being formed over and over and over again by our world. It says in Galatians, my dear children, for whom I again in pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. My wife gave birth to three kids. I was in the room for all of them. And I want to tell you this, like it's, it looked like painful work. <laughs> it looked hard. It is hard work. And we can say, because it's true, God's the one who does the work. Now, God's done everything. He saved you by his grace. And then he has invited you to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. To step onto the path of Jesus. It is the most beautiful thing. But we, we talk about formation because we actually are invited in. This is my tired but most potent picture is God alone makes the river go. God's grace alone makes the river flow. You though, spiritual practices and formation, having a plan for walking with Jesus helps you wade into the water. Practices and formation are for you. You're not earning anything from God, but they, there's a reason Jesus did them having these spiritual practices that help us. It is laborious work. It's patient work. It's hard work. But a lot of churches get this wrong. They get a great brand and they get great social media and they come up with some core values and they're like doing an amazing, they think they're doing an amazing job kind of forming people. But what they're doing is forming people into the image of their brand and not Jesus. 
Jesus is the standard and Jesus is the vision. So once you have a vision of him and you realize how much it's gonna cost you to do that, we have to wrestle with how deeply we've been formed. I wanna read this passage to you, Ephesians 4. This is a description of our condition. This is a sober passion passage. They've been darkened in their understanding, separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity, full of greed. That, however, is not the way of life that you learned when you heard about Christ and you were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former life to put off the old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires and to be made new in the attitude of your minds, to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Darkened in their understanding, separated from God. Guys, I hate to burst your bubble, but not everybody is a child of God. This is why we have the, the uh, doctrine of adoption. Everyone's made in the image of God. Everybody's worthy of dignity, but they're not like God. Therefore, they must be rescued, saved, healed. And when they're saved, you realize how important it is and how deep it is, to, how hard it is to actually come uh, live up to what you have attained, to walk out that salvation. This passage shows us just how hardwired habitual patterns are in our life. And a couple of cool sermons serving on the team and some Bible studies aren't going to get you there. The real work, the real work is recognizing that we can't fix ourselves Real work is resisting the lie that we can solve our problems. People aren't as bad. I'm not as bad as I think. <laughs> I, think I think most people are good. I'm like, they're good on the surface. But when you get below, I'm continually surprised at how really good and amazing people do really bad things. To be clear, I put myself in that category. Been shaped by the world. Been shaped by the world. We're shaped constantly by the world and our algorithms. Most of us spend more time on Instagram than we do in the scripture and Christian community. We know this. We're shaped by wounds and lies and idols and addictions, systems that we live in, the evil around us. All these things really impact us. And so the key is recognizing that we need to be counterformed. We need to push back. We need to push back against the way the world is forming us. Don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So our vision is to form people out of the way of the world and into the way of Jesus. Into the way of Jesus. And we do this. One of the ways we do this is by having a church-wide way of life, a rhythm of life, a set of practices that we engage. And over the next year, on the first of every month, to set up that home church month. We're gonna go back and teach through these practices, these spiritual disciplines, just a one-off. As we're going through our series, we're just gonna pause and go, hey, we as a church, we practice. And these practices that we have are prayer and worship, study of the scriptures, Sabbath, confession, radical hospitality, generosity, and a commitment to community. And those practices, those invitations to live a particular way in the world are meant to push back against what we see. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, I love this, it's my favorite picture, where he is um, being confronted by a friend as he's about to start this school of, um, for pastors, this seminary in Nazi Germany. He's trying to create an outpost of study for sermons that will push back against the, the, the ways in which the Nazi regime are shaping Germany. He had just come back from the United States feeling compelled to do this. And it's so intense. And his friend is confronting him. Why are you making it so intense? And so he walks his friend down 
to this ravine near where the seminary was, and he looks up, and there's a Nazi airbase on the other side of the river. And he goes, because this, pointing to the seminary, this, this formation and the way we're being formed, this has to be stronger than that. I share that story all the time because every time I do it, it gets in my heart. Are the practices in your life, are the things that you're looking to build in, are they pushing back against the way in which the world around you is forming you? Because you are being formed. You are a disciple. The question is, whose disciple are you? And I ask this question of myself, like not often enough, but more regularly going, what and where do I need to lean into? Not just these practices that we have in our church, but things I need to bring into my life and my rhythm to push back and to resist. We have a rule of life, a way of life. We call it our path because the rhythms of our life, what we do, they form the desires of our heart, which is what we really want, which shape the direction of our lives. And that is who we are becoming. And so practices and formation, I spent so much time on this one because I want to make it really clear. If you're a person and you're joining home church or you're just beginning to like go deeper into, let's say, Sabbath, you can do a thousand Bible studies on Sabbath, have theological debates about what a day of rest should look like. But I find usually it's those folks who do it the least. Show me nine months of you taking one day a week where you put your phone down, you're attentive to your kids or your friends, you're slowing your life and spending time worshiping the Lord. I will show you someone who will begin to look more like Jesus than doing a word study on the word Sabbath. Actually beginning to stop and slow down, I mean, you don't even need to have like a desire at all to follow Jesus to know just sociologically you will be healthier if you do this. To remember that you don't have to keep producing all the time. The world will be okay if you stop and know the rest that is in him. So I just want to say this. We have to hold up being formed into the image of Jesus. We have to take seriously the effects of sin and we have to help each other be counterformed out of brokenness. In this season, I've been reminded again and again of James 1.4. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, not lacking anything. If your goal is to pursue a sort of basic happiness, then these last few years were really challenging, all right, for you. But if your goal is to become more like Jesus, then this cultural moment in a city like ours, in a church like this, man, is the chance of a freaking lifetime. I believe that Jesus has positioned our church to be a place to grow a place to take seriously the call to discipleship and not pay lip service to it. I want to go after it with all that I have. And I just want to say you can do it. You're the perfect candidate. You're the perfect candidate. In a minute, I'm going to invite up my new friend, Zachary Dunning, to be baptized. Zachary heard the invitation to say yes to Jesus, to say yes to Jesus in this moment. Matthew 9, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. Guys, that's how discipleship starts when you're like brand new, like Matthew, and it's how it starts today for those of you who've been walking with Jesus for decades. Follow me, follow me. Fresh resolve in my heart again to follow me. This stupid smile on my face is because just when I think about it, like leaving church today and my feet hit the pavement outside, follow me. Like to hear that again, I'm filled with so much joy. Not just some adrenaline fueled, yeah, I'm gonna follow Joe, like God, I, though I do get that a lot. But also like on a Sunday afternoon where I'm spent, when I put my foot down outside of 15 Hayes, I get filled with a kind of rest. 
Follow me into that rest, Andrew. Follow me into that rest. Whether it was well done today, Andrew, or like, good Lord, that was a mess. (laughs) Follow me. This is how discipleship starts. You know how Matthew's life ends? Church historians aren't, they're not exactly sure, but they're pretty sure that he dies a martyr. He goes to Ethiopia, preaches the gospel and is killed for his faith. Do you think Matthew is like, you know, I'm thinking about, you know what I'm thinking about doing? I'm thinking about being one of the founding apostles of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm gonna put myself, like write a little letter, a little book. I'm gonna pop it into the Bible. It's gonna be read like by idiots like Andrew, like 2000 years from now. No. I think he had an idea of the history shaping influence that was going to come into his life. Here's what he knew about himself, Matthew, in this passage. He was a social outcast. He had sinned against so many people. He had a completely shame-filled identity as a tax collector. And Jesus said, let's go. And Matthew said, okay, this is an upgrade. I'm with you. That's how discipleship works. It changed his life. He said yes to a person. He said yes to a new life. He said yes to deep meaning and significance. So I want you, I want you to understand to say yes to Jesus is to upgrade your life in every conceivable way. And if you don't believe me, would you just maybe experiment with it? You can clap, you're not clapping for me. Maybe just try it. John's whole book is an experiment and just trying it. He gets to the very end of this book. He said, I wrote about all these things he did so that you might know who he really is. So many people have come to know Jesus just by taking up the cause to experiment with, what if I read the Sermon on the Mount and did everything it said for a while? Don't, don't start in Leviticus for now. You don't need to know every ins and outs of every bit of doctrine. Just step in. You're loved at the depth of your being. You do not have to fear death. You're loved by the God of the universe. And when you put your trust in him, your sins, your past, they are forgiven. The slate is wiped clean and you begin to walk in that mercy and begin to live out this adoption and begin to trust that you really are loved and you really are a part of his family and you really get to join him. The stay at home parent, to the hedge fund manager, to the person who's like the entrepreneur who's blue-eyed and bushy-tailed. We all get to join God in the work that he's doing. Can I get an amen? When you say no to Jesus, you limit your options. When you say yes to Jesus, you say yes to every available option in the kingdom of heaven. Trust me, it's better, it's better. It's better. I want to show you this painting. I want to show you this painting. There it is. Yes. Oh, it's so hard to see. You see the hand right here? It's called uh, St. Matthew at Caravaggio. It's in a little chapel in Rome. It's got a man sitting at the table. Jesus is in the shadows there on the right. And you can see Matthew right there is the one in the center all lit up. You can show that, I think, the next slide because a little explanation. I love this image so much. Jesus goes and talks to this kind of person that nobody ever wanted to talk to. And he says to him, Matthew, do you want a different life? And he says, follow me. Now, if you zoom in and look at Jesus's hand in this picture, I think it's a zoom in picture. Right there, there we go. It's the same hand that Michelangelo painted in the Sistine Chapel. Same hand, he draws the exact same hand, reaching out. Love it. It's like, he's saying, is it, um, This is God reaching out. Matthew's not reaching back. He's unsure, right? He's unsure of what will happen. He actually uses Adam's hand for Matthew. What he's saying is that Christ is understood, Matthew is understood as the second Adam. He's saying, listen, Matthew, you don't have to save yourself. 
You don't have to fix yourself. You don't have to come up with this yourself. He will do it for you. All you have to do is say yes. And so you've got this beautiful scene. And I love, look at the look on Matthew's face. To go back to the main painting. He's painted here. He's got his hand on his chest. Just like this. Like who? Who me? Here, go back to the main painting. Look at his hand. Like me? Jesus, did you mean me? Will you let everything else go? Matthew gets up and follows him. And so the one word that I sensed for this morning for our family was just, he wants you. Like he wants you. Maybe you're an overwhelmed parent. Maybe you're so full of doubt. Maybe you have this sense of Jesus just calling out to you and you're not sure what to do with it. He has more for you. He wants you. The invitation to follow me comes again and again and again and again. The artist here. forcing us to ask the question along with Matthew. Do you want to follow him? Would you bow your heads to me? Holy Spirit, would you give us a revelation of just how good life is with you? Lord, there are folks in here that have been hurt by the church. Can I just say this to you? Let me pause praying for a minute. Like, I'm not asking you if you've been hurt by the church to trust me. I'm not asking you to trust our church. I'm asking you to start with Jesus. Maybe you've been sitting back for a long time. You've used every possible excuse to sit back and you need to get in the game. You've been in the fans, critiquing, pointing fingers, focused on your preferences and God's inviting you to forsake your preferences for the sake of the gospel for the sake of community he's asking you to follow him and so whether the invitation today is gentle or it's strong I want to invite you to say yes.